morning, brethren. I've been granted the privilege to, again, bring to you all the Word of God. This morning, we will be looking at the book of 2 John in its entirety. <clears throat> now, my hope for us this morning is that we would come away with a greater understanding of the importance of both truth and love. These two words are really the theme of this second epistle by the Apostle John. And these two words are some of the most misunderstood, misused, and misapplied words in our culture and our society today. But before we dig into the context of, or the content, rather, of John 2, or 2 John, <clears throat> I think it's important that we have some historical context as to what was going on around this letter and the occasion for writing this letter. That's, I think that will help make this letter come alive a little bit as we hear it. Written somewhere between 90 to 95, 80, so we're talking roughly 60 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord, John wrote this epistle to warn of the danger of certain false teachers who had arisen <clears throat> who had arisen on the scene and how their doctrine was not just some slight deviation that was within orthodoxy, but that the message they were bringing was one that was too far from the truth and that it would put someone, someone outside of the kingdom of God if their teaching were to be adopted and believed. Heaven or hell, life or death, truth or lie. These false teachers and their followers, also called secessionists, not cessationists, there's a difference, meaning that they had seceded from the true church. They had left the true church. They had adopted a false view of the nature of Christ and his atonement. And they were seeking to infiltrate the church with this deceptive doctrine. And we'll get into the specifics of that later, but I just wanted to give a little bit of background as to what was going on and why John wrote this letter. Now, going back to those two words, truth and love. About 20 years ago, so I can only imagine these numbers have trended even worse, the Barna Group did a two, uh, two nationwide surveys, one asking adults and the other asking teenagers questions relating to moral truth and moral absolutes. And what they found was that 64% of adults said truth is always relative to the person and their situation. With teenagers, who mind you are now in their 30s, given this was done in 2002, the percentage was even higher, 83%. More than 8 out of 10 teens at that time believed truth is relative. With these figures, it's no wonder why you see the insanity of what is happening in our culture today. And when looking at these numbers, the younger the age group was, the less they believed in the truth as a philosophical or religious concept. This is, of course, merely a symptom of their rejection of Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate. If you don't have Christ, you will reject the truth. The truth about the world, the truth about mankind, the truth about God, Scripture, and certainly Jesus Christ as the truth. And if you don't have Christ, then you cannot truly love, for God is love. And if you don't have Christ, then you don't have the Father or the Spirit, and you cannot truly love. And while people can understand the concept of truth, the nature, definition, and meaning of genuine love has been completely distorted, largely due to the Greco-Roman view of love, which is the dominant view of love in our culture. This view of love is emotion-driven. 
And John wants his readers to have a proper understanding of truth and love, namely the truth about the nature of Jesus Christ and how we are to love one another as his disciples. So let us do that now by reading 2 John in its entirety. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help. Our gracious God in heaven, we need you desperately. We need your help to understand your word. We cannot understand these spiritual things apart from you. Help us now understand what it is you are speaking to us as we dig into the scriptures, as we seek to know you more, not just for knowledge's sake, but so that we may love you more, and that help us to come away with a better understanding, to understand truth and love as you want us to understand. We ask in your name, amen. So as I'm sure you picked up, the words truth, love, and commandment are all mentioned multiple times. Just in these 13 verses of this short epistle, love is mentioned four times, truth five times, and commandment four times. So needless to say, these are important themes in this letter, which we will address as we move through it. To start, the author of 2 John refers to himself as the elder. Now there have been various views on who this elder is. There is external evidence that suggests there was someone known as John or El the elder John who was not the Apostle John. And because of this has led some to believe, most notably the early church father Jerome in the late 300s, that the author of 2 John and 3 John was not the Apostle John, but rather this separate person referred to as the Elder John. However, most commentators believe that there is stronger evidence to support Johannine authorship. Some of that evidence includes the very strong evidentiary support that first John was written by the Apostle, namely the eyewitness accounts, the very similar writing style of John's Gospel to first John, as well as the external evidence 
of the, of the church attributing 1 John to the apostle with Irenaeus, Dionysius of Alexandria, and Tertullian all ascribing the same authorship of 1 John and the fourth gospel in the early to mid 200s is when they were saying that, so even you know, before Jerome. And because we can safely say that 1 John was written by the apostle, and because of striking similarities between 1 and 2 John, we can also safely say that 2 John was as well penned by the same person, this person who walked with Jesus on this earth for three years, who laid his head upon the bosom of the Lord Jesus during that last supper in the upper room, and who witnessed with his own eyes the suffering endured by our Savior in his subsequent resurrection and ascension. Some of these similarities between 1 and 2 John include the subject matter of dealing with the false teaching of the secessionists, calling the false teachers antichrists, and some of the nearly word-for-word -word phrases used, such as, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have since the beginning, in 1 John 2, 7, and 2 John 5, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning. Nearly identical wording. These are just a few of the reasons to accept Johannine authorship. There are many others. So now that we've established authorship, who is the recipient of this letter? The Apostle John writes his second epistle to, quote, the chosen lady. Again, there have been various interpretations throughout church history as to who this, who this chosen lady was. With some saying this chosen lady was an actual individual woman with her natural children being addressed here. However, the stronger consensus seems to be to interpret the chosen lady as a specific local church and her children as the members of that local church. Support for this would be the common usage throughout the Old Testament scriptures to refer to Israel as wife, bride, mother, daughter, and so forth. And of course, we know that later the universal church is referred to as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. So with this evidence and consensus from commentators, we can safely say with a good level of confidence that the chosen lady and her children are a local congregation and its members that the Apostle John is writing to. Now that we've identified author and recipient of this letter, this epistle, let's look at the subject. What did the Apostle John want this church to know? Well, he wants this church to know that he loves them. And he wants them to know how he loves them. Right from the start, the Apostle addresses this local congregation with a greeting of love. He says in verse 1 that he loves them, but he doesn't want to leave the statement to too broad of an interpretation. So he qualifies his statement of love with how he loves them. He loves them, he says, in truth. He then wants them to know just how loved they are by widening the circle of the givers of this love. He says, it's not only I who love you, right, but also all who know the truth. He's letting this local church know that they are loved by all the churches, that they are not alone, but that all believers, which are those who know the truth, love them. It was, it was one of the things that I was very encouraged by when we first started coming to this church a few years ago was the time of corporate prayer for other churches within California and throughout the world. I'd been in many churches in my life, and this was the first church I'd ever hear really do that on a consistent basis. Often churches... A church can become so focused on just their local congregation that they forget there are other churches, other believers out there. And we all know there's various reasons for different local churches that are established, and we're not going to get into that now. But to let another church know that they are loved is of great encouragement to that church. 
Remember, being a Christian in the first century was not some sort of easy experience. The persecutions, trials, and hardships that encompassed the early church were very harsh. And my boys and I have been reading through Fox's Book of Martyrs, and the horrors that these early Christians endured are just hard to read. And I know that our fellow brothers and sisters are still enduring this kind of a persecution in many countries today. So as we talk about this this morning, let's be a reminder to pray for them, continue to pray for them, and that our love for them may increase. And this love is unique to those who are in the body of Christ, who are Christians. Hence, the qualifying statement we read, whom I love in truth. We know that we are commanded to love one another, which we'll discuss more in a bit. But the love a Christian shares with another Christian is unique. And we see this as a reflection of God's filial love for his children as compared to his general love for all mankind. Does God love believers, Christians? Yes. Does God love unbelievers, the wicked? Yes. Does God love believers and unbelievers in the same way? No. R.C. Sproul has expressed it in this way. Quote, When we look at the concept of the love of God in Scripture, we see distinctions that have to be made. Historically and theologically, we distinguish among three types of divine love. There is the love of benevolence, where God has a kind spirit to the whole world, his benevolent will, his benevolent love. But there's also the sense in which the love of God is defined in terms of his beneficence. That is, not just simply what his attitude is toward the world, but how he displays that goodness universally. The rain falls upon the just as well as upon the unjust. So that universal dimension of the love of God is manifest. But usually, when we're talking about the love of God in popular language, what we're really talking about is what, what's called God's love of complacency. Not, don't confuse it with the word complacent, that how we use it in our language today. But God's love of complacency is the special love which God has for his son and all of those who are in his son and adopted into his family. So just as God loves his children uniquely, our love for our fellow brethren is different than that of our love for those who are not in Christ. Galatians 6.10, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the, of the household of faith. And I'm sure you've had that experience where you meet someone for the first time, and they're a fellow believer, and there's a love and affection that you have for that person who you've not, never met before. And it's different than that love that you have for your unbelieving friend or your unbelieving family member even. What is that? It's the result of the oneness that we share because we have the same spirit dwelling within us. We have the same father and share Christ as our elder brother. It's that unique love we have towards our fellow brethren. Now this love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ is its foundations upon the truth as it has been revealed to us by God. Hence the Apostle John saying that the, all those who know the truth love this local church and its members in truth and for the sake of the truth as mentioned in verse 2. At the end of verse 2, John reassures the recipients of his letter that the truth abides in them and will be with them forever. This assurance that John gives is the same assurance we see John giving his readers in 1 John. Throughout the epistle, John is reassuring his fellow believers that they are in the truth. 1 John 2.27 
As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not, is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. The Lord Jesus made it clear that when we are made to be children of God and adopted into his family, this is a forever love relationship, bonded through the blood of Christ and sealed by the Spirit. We cannot lose that, walk away from it, or have it taken from us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The elder, the apostle, loves this church and its members, it's clear. I appreciate Bodhi Bakken's definition of love. He says, love is an act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Let me repeat that. Love is an act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Now, even without hearing the tone of voice in this letter, you can see and hear John's love and pastoral care for these fellow believers. John, like the Apostle Paul in many of his letters, did not want these false teachers filling the hearts of these dear believers with doubts about the true, their, the true faith and their spiritual condition. He wanted them bolstered and strengthened. And he pens this letter, will and action, tells them of his gladness to see them walking in truth, in verse 4, emotion, and later speaks of his desire to come to them in verse 12, will and emotion with the future action. In verse 3, which brings John's uh, opening greeting to conclusion, he gives a sort of blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, far be it from wishful thinking, the statement from John is again to reassure his fellow believers of these blessings of grace, mercy, and peace from God. In his commentary on 2 John, Colin Cruz writes this regarding the grace, mercy, and peace from God that John writes of to his readers. Quote, It is not so much a wish but an affirmation that grace, mercy, and peace will be with the writer and his readers. And he reassures his readers by emphasizing that God's grace, mercy, and peace will be with them despite what the secessionists might say. He includes himself with his readers as a recipient of these blessings to reinforce the sense of their community of love. John connects the giving of these blessings to believers as not only coming from God the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, thereby pointing out the unique oneness the Father and Son share, while beginning to turn his attention toward these false teachers, the false teaching of the secessionists who had denied that Jesus Christ was the monogenes, the only begotten Son of God. This ending phrase at the uh, end of verse 3, in truth and love, again is a qualifying phrase. Love that is disconnected from truth is merely sentimentalism or romanticism. Truth without love is cold and heartless. And as the Apostle, said, Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, is like a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, makes us nothing and does us no good. As Christians, our whole lives are lived in and from and through God, who is truth, and is love. Now, in verse 4, John writes to, uh, to this church that he is very glad to find some of its members walking in the truth. 
Now, to walk in the truth is to live our daily lives in such a way that it accords with the revealed will of God as provided to us in his word. And John says that it gives him great gladness to know that believers are standing firm in their faith, especially in the face of opposition and persecution. Now, regarding the phrase, some of your children, Cruz writes, quote, on the surface, this might imply that some members were not walking in truth, that some had already succumbed to the seat of the secessionists. But there is no indication elsewhere in the letter that this is the case. So it is best to regard the elder's statement as expressing joy over those who he has heard are walking in the truth without implying that the others are not. Next, the Apostle John reminds and explains that walking in truth was not merely some good idea or reserved for the more mature Christian, but was a commandment to all of Christ's followers. Just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. The word commandment or commandments is explicitly mentioned four times in verses 4 through 6. And based upon what we read in 1 John and about these false teachers and what, what can be inferred from the content of this letter, it is clear that the included in the secessionist false teaching was a type of antinomianism, meaning without law or against law which led to licentiousness and an immoral lifestyle. And here, John reminds readers the importance of not just mentally assenting to the commandments they had been given by God, but that they walk according to his commandments in verse 6. Now, there are some interpretive challenges here with understanding the specific meaning of commandment in verse 4, commandment in verse 5, commandments in verse 6a, and commandment in verse 6b. Now, in verse 4, as we mentioned before, the specific commandment was to walk in truth and was given to them by the Father. Again, Cruz writes, quote, What was the command of the Father, and when was it received? There are three possibilities to consider. One, it is an allusion to the voice from heaven at the time of Jesus' transfiguration, which said to Peter and James and John, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Another option, or another Possibility. It is a recognition that the teaching of Jesus was teaching that the Father had commanded him to pass on. Think Jesus' words in John 15 or 1250. Uh, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And three, another option, it is an equating of the gospel message with the Father's command. Now this last option is probably the correct one, says Cruz. For in 1 John 3.23, we find... And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. End quote. Now this next usage of commandment in verse 5 is pretty straightforward. But the addition of the adjective new, in contrast to the command that they had from the beginning, is deserving of our attention. John is wanting his readers to know that in contrast with this new teaching from the secessionists, the commandment for, for them was not novel. It was one that which they had from the beginning. And this phrase from the beginning appears ten times in John's first two epistles, with eight uses in 1 John and the other two in 2 John. And in every usage, the subject being spoken of in the immediate context, as well as the broader context, helps in understanding what is actually meant by from the beginning. Here in verse 5, John writes this commandment that they have had from the beginning was to love one another. And there's a reason why John is nicknamed the Apostle of Love. John's Gospel and his epistles teach us 
much about God's love and believers' love for one another. And this, in this verse, he says that they've had this commandment to love one another from the beginning. But what does John have in mind when he says beginning? This is a direct reference to the command the Lord Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room around 60 years earlier when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But wait, did the people of God get a pass before this? Did they not have to love one another? Of course not. We have commands to love one another in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 19.18. And the heart of the Decalogue, which we're going through in our, started going through in our time in Exodus, the heart of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, what is it? It's love. Right? It's being a reflection of God's holy character. What did, what did the Lord Jesus say when asked in Matthew 22? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Mark adds, with all your strength. This is the great and foremost commandment. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what did Jesus do there? He summarized the Ten Commandments as love for God and love for neighbor. The first table of the law dealing with our love towards God Right? Having no other gods, not making idols and worshiping them, honoring the name of Yahweh, keeping the Sabbath day holy, set apart. If we love God, we won't violate these commandments. But as we said before, the Lord Jesus didn't stop there. He added that the second greatest commandment was to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, that would cover the second table of the Decalogue, Commandments 5-10. through 10. If we love one another... We're not going to violate those commandments and injure one another. If we love one another more than we love ourselves, we're going to honor our mother and father. We're not going to go around murdering each other, right? We're not going to do that. We're not going to be committing adultery against one another. We're not going to steal from each other. We're not going to lie to gossip or give false testimony about one another. We won't desire, won't covet each other's stuff. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13.10 that love is the fulfillment of the law. <clears throat> I had always wondered why Jesus just didn't stop with you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that would have answered the lawyer's question who was asking him which was the greatest commandment. I mean, he didn't ask for the commandment that was runner-up, second place. So why did Jesus include it? The religious leaders of that day prided themselves on being experts in the law. Jesus said to them in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They thought that their law-keeping would grant them eternal life. That their status as natural children of Abraham would ensure their place in the kingdom of God. What they were experts at was missing the forest for the trees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tie the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They had become so cold 
that when the lawyer wishing to justify himself asked Jesus the follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan as an indictment of what their religion had become for most of them, a heartless, cold, external show. I believe Jesus included the second part about loving our neighbor because there can be a misconception that you can somehow love God while being indifferent towards others. Jesus will not leave any room for that, so he ties both tables of the law, love for God and love for others together. And this understanding of God's connection with his people is at the heart of 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. James says, you see a fellow Christian in need and you have the means to help but ignore their plight. You're not displaying a genuine faith, but a dead one. We can't say we are actively loving God if that love is not being manifest toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, in, in verse 6, John defines the Christian, this Christian love as walking according to his commandments. And as we discussed, love for God will manifest itself in obeying the commandments, right? in obeying God's law with our obedience as a result of flowing from and an effect of our salvation, not the cause of it. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And finally, the last use of commandment in this epistle at the end of verse 6 is, this is the commandment just as you have had from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now the phrase walk in it is interpreted by the translator, uh, translators of the NIV translation of the Bible as walk in love. Instead of putting walk in it, they say walk in love. And while according to Cruz's commentary, there are some commendable reasons, grammatically speaking, for choosing this interpretation, Cruz and others prefer to interpret the word it as truth, walk in truth. Or as Cruz writes, another approach to the interpretation of, quote, in it, is to regard en ought, the Greek for in it, in verse 6 as an example of semantic density. Big word. Semantic density, this is that the point of the author, the author deliberately intends that the reader understand that the antecedents of ought and eletheia and tol, eletheia being truth and tol being commandment, and agape, love, the antecedent is it. So to walk in it then would be to walk in truth and love, kind of covering that whole broad spectrum. So this idea of walking not just in love, but also in truth, leads us right into the opening of verse 7, which begins to deal with the specifics of those false teachers that John wanted to warn his readers of. Verse 7, he writes, I say this, in other words, I said what I just said, I'm going to say now, because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Now, here we get a clear glimpse into the heresy of the secessionists. When looking at John's first epistle, we get an even fuller treatise into the false doctrine of those who had left the church. They, had, they denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, whose death was an atoning sacrifice. That was the heart of the secessionist false teaching. Here in his second epistle, John zeroes in on their rejection that Jesus Christ had a corporeal body, that is, that Jesus had a real human body made up of flesh, bones, and blood. 
They denied the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other than denying the reality of the incarnation happening and the testimony of Scripture, which of course is a huge problem, why is this even important? Why is it a large enough deviation from orthodoxy to put these secessionists outside of the fellowship of the church? The implications of denying the incarnation of the eternal Son of God are huge. A Jesus who is just some sort of phantom or spirit Jesus cannot save us from our sins. Our forefather Adam, being our federal head, as members of the human race, plunged our race into death when he violated the command of God to not eat from that one tree in the garden. As the second or last Adam, Christ had to take on a human nature like ours. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, Jesus had to be made like us. He had to right Adam's wrong and fulfill all righteousness, the law, as a real human. And to do that, he had to experience the limitations, the trials, the temptations, the sufferings that come with being human. And he had to assume a fully human nature. In other words, come in the flesh. If he did not, then he could not be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as the Apostle Paul said that if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins and have a worthless faith. Also, we can say that if Christ did not take on a fully human yet sinless nature, then we also would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. Why? Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When our Lord Jesus hung on that cross, he shed real blood. He felt the real physical pain of the nails being hammered into his hands and his feet. That crown of thorns pressed upon his head that he endured for us was felt in full. Those lashings he received upon his body tore his flesh, and it was real flesh. There are other implications of rejecting the coming of Jesus as a coming in the flesh, but I wanted to focus on these because of the high importance theologically but also practically. Theologically, because as our substitute, he had to be like us, or else there is no atonement. Practically, because is it not a comfort to you in this life to know that our God, your God, knows what it means to be human? He's not the God of Einstein or deism, some uninvolved stoic deity who created the universe and then just let it go. No, your Savior knows experientially, as a human, what it means to be despised and forsaken of men. He knows sorrow, for he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
So important is the need to believe this truth about the nature of Jesus Christ, that these former members of the church community who were teaching contrary to this truth are branded as deceivers, or the deceiver, and the antichrist. The definite article the before deceiver and antichrist is, according to Cruz, meant to link these false teachers with the false teacher, the great deceiver who is Satan. John makes this connection in 1 John as well. The Antichrist, plural, who were already present, and the Antichrist, singular, who was to be revealed toward the end of the age. The church has had many enemies throughout its history. The Apostle Paul warned in Acts 20 of the need to be on guard against false teachers, saying, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. Note that verse. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Both apostles, Paul and John, recognize the dangers, not just from without, but also from within the church. Next in verse 8, the, apostles give this, the apostle gives this admonition, this warning to his readers to watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Cruz notes that when seeking to understand this verse, it should be noted that there are some different textual variants in the earliest manuscripts, with some reading what you have worked for instead of what we have worked for. In either case, there's something to be lost when straying into false doctrine. Some believe what is at stake here is perhaps the loss of the everlasting reward believers are expected to receive at the last judgment. And while the scriptures do speak of these eternal rewards and our confession reaffirms that teaching, here in the context of the false teachers, what seems to fit best is the potential loss of their faith. Now, of course, we know that faith is not a work, but understanding John's writing helps us make more sense. So in John 6, after feeding the 5,000, the crowd is trying to track down Jesus, and he tells them this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So what is the crowd's response? What fallen man's response always is, give me something to do. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the warning John gives his readers is a legitimate one, but it must be understood in light of the rest of scripture, which teaches us that those who depart from the true faith show themselves to have never had the seal of the Holy Spirit upon them in the first place. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. 1 John 2.19 Now this leads us right into the thought of verse 9. Anyone who goes too far does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Sorry, let me read that again. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You know, throughout the history of the church, theological lines have had to be drawn. 
And to determine where those lines should be drawn, careful study of the scriptures was undertaken, and oftentimes confessions and creeds came out of those as a response to false teachers of the day. You know, sometimes we read about these false teachers in the Bible, and it can seem very disconnected from our everyday lives, until one day it smacks you right in the face, and you're having to deal with the reality of choosing between friends and family and Christ. Those are not easy experiences. They are trying and they are filled with heartache. Just to share a personal story, you know, I've shared this with some of you that we've had some dear friends of ours who, I mean, they were so close to us that we had, you know, said to ourselves, like, if anybody, you know, if our family wasn't able to take our kids for whatever reason, like, who would we want to watch over our kids? Like, who would we want to entrust our children to? And it was this couple. And that's how much we loved them and trusted them. And during COVID, there was a transition in, in the husband's understanding of the scriptures. And this led them to adopt some heretical teachings about who God was, about the triune nature uh, of God. It was basically at the heart of it. They adopted this false view that, that the son was not eternal, that there was no eternal son who pre-existed his, his birth in Bethlehem. And because of this, this denial of the doctrine of the Trinity for us, it was, we had to deal with that. We had to have difficult conversations with them. And I appreciate Pastor Nate had counseled me through some of that. And it was very challenging because when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the middle of it, you just, you, your brain has a hard time reconciling how these people that you love and trusted, how they could stray into such, what you see as such clear, damnable heresy. And you're saying something to them where when I can't no longer tell the husband, you're my brother. I stopped calling him brother. And we use that term sort of flippantly in our culture. What's up, brother? You know, but when I say brother, when I say brother Chris or hey, brother Nate, I'm saying it that not as brother, but as brother. You're my brother in the Lord. We have a union with Christ and with one another. And I couldn't say that anymore to this man who was very good friend and become a good friend those are difficult things and so false teaching is alive and well today it didn't just disappear in the first few centuries of the church but it keeps just getting repackaged and so we see that here in second john that the importance of holding to the true faith and that these theological lines that were drawn throughout history they're important blood was spilt over them and we can't just flippantly widen that circle so that it, it makes us feel better about that person. To say to them, I believe you're, in, you're believing in a damnable heresy, that your soul is at stake, that's hard to accept. Like that's emotionally hard to say that. And as, as Christians, we're talking about love here. We have a genuine love for these people, right? It's not some sort of transactional thing. And so your heart aches when you... You pray and you cry and you weep over their soul and their children. Standing with the historical church will keep a local church safe. Will keep your family safe. I heard one preacher say it this way, that we should always work out our theology within the context of the church. And what he meant by that was within the context of church history. If as an individual or as a church, 
new doctrine is being produced, you can be assured that it is false doctrine. Being a confessional church, reciting the historical creeds as we've done this morning, truly is a blessing. And the more acquainted I become with them, the greater value and appreciation I have for them. It is a great protection for us as a church to keep us from straying into any kind of false doctrine that would poison us. Now here in verse 9, John makes abiding, remaining in the teaching of Christ, indicative of your relationship with God. If you stray from the realm of orthodoxy, then regardless of what you say or what you do, the fact of the matter is you do not have Christ. Jesus just as Jesus told the Pharisees that if God was really their father, they would love him because he had proceeded forth and had come from God the Father. If you don't accept or remain in the teaching of Christ, you don't have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, then you don't have the Father, which means you don't have God. In verse 10, John says that the false teachers should not be received literally into house. Now, given that the lady being addressed in this epistle refers to a local church. This instruction to not receive these traveling false prophets into your house could mean not receiving them into the fellowship of the assembly, which would have met in the house. Even with the understanding of this letter being written to a local church, this directive to not provide hospitality to these wolves in sheep's clothing could still apply to the individual church members' houses when we understand the significance of hospitality in the day and age that John is writing his letter. Again from Cruz, quote, Because hosts acted as guarantors for their guests to the rest of the community, and because, Christ, uh, because Christian greetings generally carried a recognition of the true Christian standing of those greeted and invoked a blessing on them, the elder knew that it was not possible for his readers to greet the secessionists without that greeting, implying a recognition of the secessionist Christian standing, and thus identifying themselves with the secessionist wicked work. The wicked work, of course, was propagating aberrant teaching, and if his readers greeted these people or took them into their houses, they would be associating themselves with this work, end quote. John says to avoid being yoked together with these liars by not providing them hospitality. And having loved his fellow believers by encouraging them and warning them, the elder now closes his letter with the affection of a father, the affection a father would have for his own children, saying how he hopes to be able to speak to them in person and acknowledges that their joy will be made full by him doing so. And he closes with a greeting from the chosen sister or a local congregation that he himself is a member of. He, the apostle, can have a confident, sure hope that he would see his fellow believers face to face. And if not in this life, certainly in the next. Why? Because Christ came in the flesh. Because Christ walked in truth and in love. And because Christ shed actual blood, died, and then rose again for us. And for us here today, we can have a sure, confident hope that we will see our Savior face to face. Why? Because of those reasons we just said. Because Christ came in the flesh, He walked in truth and love, and because Christ shed actual blood, died, 
and then rose again for us. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, thank you for your word that you've given to us this morning. We pray that we would come away from this time with a greater love for you, understanding love rightly as you've revealed in your word, understanding truth rightly as you've revealed in your word and in this epistle to us today. I pray that this would only increase um, our love and affection for you and thereby increase in love, our love and affection for one another as fellow believers, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we love one another well, never perfectly, for we're still in these bodies of death. But one day we will love each other perfectly and love you perfectly when we're all united, reunited in heaven and we see you face to face. Until that time, please bless us as you always do. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.